0: Welcome to the 85th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis and insights that drive growth, and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high-pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest open letters to CEOs, podcasts with industry leaders, and news from Loose Threads. Check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Rachel Winard, the founder of Soapwalla, a clean skincare brand that came out of Rachel's need to find products that would not aggravate her sensitive skin. She launched the brand in 2009, years before clean beauty would become what it is today, not to mention she was making the same products for herself many years before that.
1: We're a unisex brand, and that's on purpose. I say if you have skin, you can use our products, and I mean it. I don't dictate to you who I want our customer to be, because you are our customer.
0: What has followed is a brand that has stayed true to its origins, growing organically but not recklessly, as people around the world realize the purity of products made from only natural ingredients. Here's my talk with Rachel Winard. So why don't we just start, I guess, talk a bit about your background, then we can work our way up to this company existing.
1: I have a really varied background. I started playing violin when I was four and took to it immediately. I often say it's my first way of communicating. And I went professional when I was 12. So I was a professional classically trained violinist from the time I was 12 until I was 19. I toured, performed with a number of orchestras. It was really lovely. I went to Juilliard, I did the whole thing. Realized when I was 19 that the business of music was not the same as the art. Did you go to Juilliard
0: before you were 19?
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. I graduated high school when I was 16, and I turned 17 in that summer interim. So 17 and 19, I was at Juilliard. And that was a really tough realization for me because I was a violinist before I was anything else. I knew from the time I was a child, this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So when I made that realization, I finished out undergrad at the University of Washington in Seattle. My parents were living in Seattle at the time. It just made sense. I loved the varied kind of classes that I could take because conservatory is not like that. It's you know music theory, music theory, performance and yeah. performance.
0: And like one English class that you have to take. English class yeah. in quotes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I'm a curious person by nature. So the fact that I could study 20 different subjects and with people who were experts in their fields and like loved these topics, oh, I ate it up. I mean, I could be a lifetime college student. So I ended up creating my own major, Society and Justice. It's a philosophy major, generally. It was the relationship between societal structures and justice and how we define that and the common good and all of those big media issues. And because I was excelling in those kinds of classes, my advisor advised me to take the LSAT, which is the prep test for law school. And then when I did well, she advised me to apply to law school. And since I loved New York and wanted to get back, I applied to Columbia. And then when I got in, she advised me to just try it out. And I was in such a state of, I sort of felt like a piece of driftwood. Like I didn't know what, who I was, what I wanted to do. So I just latched onto that idea And my parents, who I like to say are like the anti-stereotypical Jewish parents, they were like, are you sure you want to go to law school? Are you sure you don't want to be a starving artist? But I signed on the dotted line. We moved across the country. I wish I were exaggerating, but about 30 minutes in that first class, I thought, oh, this is totally not for me.
0: (laughs) What was it specifically?
1: Really, the whole thing. (laughs) Law school sort of breaks you down to build you back up. Yeah, that sounds
0: like Juilliard now.
1: Yeah, but in a different way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like really tough projects. <laughs> I like to hurt. <laughs> the way you have to analyze everything was just very foreign to me. And Socratic method, I still to this day shudder, even when I say it. I just really dislike that form of teaching, which is really you pummel someone until they make a mistake and then you move on. So that probably was the thing that Hmm. triggered for me. (laughs) I'd never had stage fright. I could perform in front of 5,000 people, no problem. Socratic method made me terrified Hmm. of opening my mouth in front of people. But I was already $55,000 in debt. So that was the end of that. I knew I was going to stay till the end. And also I felt like I'd already quit a career. And so I was determined to see this one out. The second day of law school was 9-11. So... Those two things for me are permanently intertwined. I also got very sick during law school. That first semester, I literally went overnight from being totally healthy my entire childhood to very, very sick. And it took a year and a half to be diagnosed with systemic lupus urethematosus, or lupus for short, which is an autoimmune illness. Autoimmune illness just means that your body gets confused and you start attacking your own cells, thinking they're foreign bodies. So I was dealing with all of that during law school. There's a whole chunk, there's a whole semester I really have no recollection of because I was in such a health crisis. Graduated, found the most artistic kind of law I could, which was land use. And that is local New York City zoning development. And I worked specifically on pro bono and with art and educational institutions to help them realize a physical space that embodied what they were creating. So I loved that. And the people I worked with were really wonderful. I worked at two firms, one firm for the first like 11 months, and then the remainder of my four year law firm career, I was at Brian Cave, and I'm still friends with my old bosses. They're really lovely. They support Soapwalla and me, and I feel very lucky that I know them. Just the practice of law itself is inherently highly stressful and not so good if you have an autoimmune illness. So I was in a flare the whole time I, I worked. I couldn't get my health under control. At one point, my specialists had me on chemotherapy to just get rid of my immune system, not a way to live permanently. And I knew it. I knew this was not sustainable in any way, shape or form. So the way that I make decisions is I sit on them for a really long time and then the second I make them, I'm done. (laughs) I act immediately. So I remember really struggling with what to do and how to keep myself alive, really. And I knew I needed to go to India and see an Ayurvedic doctor. I had already been making skincare for myself this whole time, really out of necessity. Alongside the internal health issues, I had ridiculous skin issues. Skin is almost always involved in some way with lupus. And I say it's a little like the canary in the coal mine. Like if you have really intense systemic issues internally, your skin is going to tell you about them in some way. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't use anything on the market. So that's how I really got into the making of skincare. Never to have a business. Interesting. Yeah.
0: What was it like the first time you started doing it? Was it challenging? Was it interesting? What was the first thing you made, I guess?
1: Soap. I needed a cleanser and I needed a moisturizer. So soap and what is now our restorative face serum. And I loved it. Like I said earlier, I am a curious person by nature. I'm also a perfectionist and I jump in feet first if I am intrigued by something. So I taught myself chemistry I taught myself formulation. I read everything I could on botany, on aromatherapy, on herbology. Old wives' tales actually have a ton of information about medicinal uses for plants stemming back hundreds of years. So I just soaked all of that up, and I loved it. It's also creative. I need to feed that part of me. And when I formulate it is more like a musical composition than mm. it would be like a traditional sort of formula, I think, in musical terms. So it was the perfect outlet for me. But that's how I found out about Ayurveda, was through all of this research for skincare, and it really resonated with me. So I knew when I was going to sort of get myself healthy, I was going to take myself out of that, like, the entire environment and just focus on getting better. So I went to my boss, the partner of our department, and said, I'm going to India for four months. And I figured he was going to say, good luck, we're letting you go. And instead he said, okay, we'll hold your position, we'll give Mm -hmm. you a sabbatical, which floored me, especially as a junior associate in a big New York City firm. So I went to India, I saw my doctor every single day. And when I got back, my bloods were normal for the first time mm. since I'd been diagnosed. And it really gave me a much better understanding of the intricacies of natural ingredients. I became a better formulator after, after that period. Mm. I went back to work and almost immediately I knew I wasn't gonna be there for very long. My blood level started creeping back up. I could sort of feel myself getting that kind of run down that I wasn't ever mm. gonna allow myself to be again and I made the decision to leave law completely. It took a year and a half of friends and family really gently prodding and telling me that other people might be interested in using the products that I made because I'd perfected a whole line at that point. Whatever I needed, I made. Whatever friends and family needed, I made. I made sure it was as good as it could be, so. Very quietly, I premiered Soapwalla in December of 2009. I put up an Etsy page, and I didn't tell anybody. (laughs) And I was very lucky. A blogger, I think by chance, found us, bought some of our deodorant and a couple other products, really loved them, wrote a glowing review, and then that took off.
0: As you look back, do you have any sense why you never thought of doing anything with it besides yourself, and that it's interesting that the prodding came externally to the point it actually pushed you to go do it.
1: I think it was my experience with music. That was my first love. And I was heartbroken when I realized that doing it as a career Mm. was nothing like doing it as a passion. And I didn't want to experience that again. So I was very hesitant for this new passion of mine to be kind of sullied by the ugliness of business.
0: And what made you overcome that at a certain point or what, what was said or agreed upon to the point <laughs> where you're like, okay, no, no, no I, let's try this again.
1: I think that's why it was such a quiet opening. Mm. I figured if anything happens, it was kind of meant to be, but I wasn't going to put myself out there in that same way 100% until I was okay with it. And it was a very conscious growth pattern, I turned down big box retail earlier on. I wanted to be in control of this narrative. And I have such strong guiding principles for how we make the products, with what ingredients we use, how we market them, who we sell to, everything. And that's when I decided that was gonna be the number one driver, not profit. And that helped me feel more in control of this. Mm -hmm.
0: So this thing starts on Etsy. This blogger writes a piece. Mm -hmm. What was the result of that piece?
1: I saw a tenfold in hits to the site Mm -hmm. and purchases. And then more people starting to reach out and say, I heard about your deodorant and your body oil. Those were the two things she wrote about. Tell me more about this. And those purchases went up. And then people started writing about them as well. So it was this really organic, no pun intended, marketing that wasn't any control Mm -hmm. of mine. But I think because it was sort of an honest way of getting the word out, people really resonated with it. It wasn't coming from me or the company. It was coming from people who tried the products and swore by them. So I think that held much more weight.
0: Do you consider this part of like clean beauty or where does it sit if anywhere from a term perspective and then where was that market and kind of offering generally when you started this
1: yeah absolutely i would say we're clean skincare okay i don't personally use the word beauty but you know i understand the interchangeability of that we're a unisex brand and that's on purpose i say if you have skin you can use our products and i mean it we don't use human models anywhere in our marketing, like on our social media, mm. if there's a person and it's not me, it was a customer who posted something and we just reposted mm-hmm. it. There are no people on our website. I don't dictate to you who I want our customer to be because you are our customer. Mm. I tend to say clean skincare, or natural skincare, organic skincare. They're all sort of interchangeable at this point. The market's changed dramatically. I don't even really recognize it at this point from where it started in 2009 and definitely before we were one of the first brands that sort of came about during this revitalized movement i would say or more conscious movement but the market looked totally different in the mid 2000s especially so i was diagnosed during 2002 2003 there was nothing I could mm. find. That's why I started making these products. They were either very expensive and just used the terms I was desperately seeking, hypoallergenic for sensitive skin, natural as buzzwords. Or they were, I like to say, and I don't mean it in a demeaning way, it's just is evocative for me, is like a hippie granola like at the farmer's market, made in someone's mm-hmm kitchen and it was kind of oily and gloopy and like it was hard to use and I didn't know really what ingredients were in there and as I and my skin became more and more reactive to things I was much more hesitant to use anything that I didn't know exactly what Mm -hmm. was in it. I mean look at the marketplace today it's saturated it's completely saturated. I read a statistic and I wish I could remember where but a hundred green beauty brands are launched every single day around the globe that's crazy now probably 70 clothes every single day so you know it all washes out but (laughs) still that number was astounding to me yeah and at the same time not terribly surprising
0: so i assume you made all the stuff in your kitchen Mm -hmm. you still formulate there in some form
1: I'm the sole formulator, yeah. but we do have a studio. We've had okay. a studio for the last eight years. I wanted to get out of the apartment as quickly as possible for two reasons. One, for just sanitation-wise. I really wanted it to be mm-hmm. a true professional operation. And two, I don't think it's a good idea to have like a business like that in your home. You'll never stop working. Yeah. <laughs> but I am still the sole formulator. I love it. I really gotcha. love that part of my job.
0: It would seem with a lot of consumer products, there is often this kind of mass barrier between... The design and kind of the creation, the idea that, like, a lot of creation just happens very far east Mm. and overseas and so forth, Mm -hmm. and you get this thing back and and so Mm -hmm. forth. There's often ideas around a lot of complexity, whether it's apparel, which takes time to design and manufacture and and source, beauty, also known for a ton of different formulas and and all that. Was there a paradox you found that all of the fine print on the back of most skincare was Mm -hmm. overcomplicating everything? And if you actually stripped away the things you didn't want, it was actually an easier thing to do than... Because I think a lot of people look at skincare and go, I have no clue how to make this. It seems like people in the lab in white coats made it and yeah. all these things. But I'm wondering if paradoxically the focus on the clean part actually made this much easier.
1: Yes, I did make it easier on myself. Well, easier and harder. So easier in the sense that I don't need like a massive HVAC system and a hazmat yeah. suit, which you're going to see in a lab because I'm not working with such highly volatile compounds. That <laughs> Like I'll blow my face off yeah. if I do something wrong. So that eliminated a huge barrier i didn't need that equipment just to start
0: and you can start in a kitchen you can start in
1: a kitchen and you can also start with uh simplified formulations and get more complicated as you become more comfortable that being said i am beholden to the environment so if you make something in a lab and it's 100 percent synthetic you can make it all day every day to the end of the world you'll know exactly what it looks like smells like feels like acts like Mm. natural ingredients not so much Each batch we get is different. It depends on what the bees pollinated before they pollinated those flowers, if there was a drought, if there was a heavy rain season, if the winds had shifted, Mm -hmm. if a farmer two acres down planted a new crop, if the soil was tilled properly, a million other variables, which I love. Mm -hmm. I love that part of the job, and that's also why we still keep our hands literally in the production of the products because you can feel that and you can see it and you can smell it. And it's something that takes a little bit of an education to the consumer because two bars of soap are not gonna look exactly the same or smell exactly Mm -hmm. the same. Two batches of our body oil will not look exactly the same or smell exactly the same. They will be nearly the same. Like, you know, I'm talking 98% Mm -hmm. similar, but there's a small difference. It's like wine vintages right? From year to year, there are going to be slight differences. That's the excitement about it. Yep. It's a living thing that you're working with. And I really want to get that excitement across to the consumer.
0: Okay. So you launched in 2009. Yep. It's an Etsy store. This yep. blog post happens. For the rest of that year, what is the focus and how does the business kind of evolve up into, I guess, 2010?
1: So through the yes of the year, we saw a steady increase. And definitely by that holiday season, I was overwhelmed. It was just you. It was just me. Yeah, my partner, Stacy, who's my life partner, um, she would definitely help me out since I had taken over every flat surface in the apartment at that point. It's (laughs) unavoidable. It is, it is. And after that holiday season, she very nicely said, how about in January I help you look for a space? (laughs) And it was the right move. So I found a tiny little space I think right around the same time that spring or maybe early summer, I found a market, like a 20-minute walk from our apartment in Brooklyn at this really cool brick building in Gowanus and really talented artisans. Sometimes those markets can be a little hit or miss. And this one was just like high, high caliber, everyone in there. And I loved it. And when it came time to look for a space, I reached out to the person who sort of curated that. And he was the landlord for this building mm-hmm. that we were in the in the ground floor of. And he helped me find a space in the building. And we've been in that same building for eight years. We moved from a 500-square-foot space to a 1,500-square-foot mm-hmm. space right next door. But, yeah, I hope never to have to leave that building because I really love it.
0: And so that's an internal – that's like an office studio. That's not. it's not a sales – no, no, so, we so had, it's still internal. Yes, it's okay. internal,
1: yes. E-commerce site, and then we have 250 retail partners in 30 countries around yet. the world. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not, not in 20... No, not days. in yeah, 2010. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think we had two retail okay. partners, which was very exciting for me. And then late that summer, the New York Daily News wanted to do a feature on me, which I was excited about and a little hesitant about, but it ultimately was a positive piece And that was when we got our first out-of-state retailer. People read that around the country and started reaching Mm. out, wanting to get more information.
0: And was the retail something that was just like, oh, this is logical to do? Because the following years, it would be no one would want to do it. And then now they all want to go back and wholesale again. But Mm -hmm. how did you start to think about distribution? I guess you had an Etsy site then and then Mm -hmm. just a few... retail started to happen.
1: Exactly. I was excited about it because it made sense to me. I mean, we have this environmental aspect too. We're very conscious of our footprint and it made much more sense to me to ship to one person a larger volume and have people come to them to buy than me shipping a million tiny packages all over the country. So it made perfect sense to me. Plus, I've said this a couple times, so I apologize for repeating myself, but there is an educational aspect to of natural course. skincare, and it's really helpful if there's a representative on site who can walk through that with the customer, especially someone the customer already trusts.
0: So it sounds like that first year, the focus is really just like, get this thing out the door, set up a little bit of infrastructure, and exactly. like keep it moving.
1: Fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was really the first year you ran a business. Oh, yeah. What was that like in I guess retrospect,
1: in retrospect, it was exhilarating. It really was. Right around then was when I realized I was an entrepreneur by nature. I think you are, or you aren't. I've really come mm-hmm. to realize that. I think there are uh, certain traits that we have, that like insatiable curiosity, and that like need to get something out in the world in that way that's yours. And that was really feeding that part of me that I didn't even know existed before that.
0: I guess you hit 2010 then. Mm-hmm. Still you?
1: Still me, yeah. Stacy definitely started helping more formally, I would say by 2011. Okay. Well, I hired people to help me out every once in a while, right. like for short periods of time. But I want to say 2014.
0: So you spent almost four years. It was just you plus some people helping. Oh, definitely. And I
1: in. didn't take a salary either. Hmm. Every single cent went back into the business, which is how we've been able to stay in the black. I run things very leanly, I don't over max anything. Like when I travel for business, I take subways. I don't fly first class. I don't do some of the things that it can feel really sexy to do Mm -hmm. because I know exactly where that money can go to grow the business and really sustain it. I also feel a real responsibility to my employees. So I would never hire someone if I didn't think I could provide them with the work. And I wanna make sure once I hire you, I can keep you.
0: I assume you were adding SKUs throughout that time as well. Um, Just in terms of you started with the two, and then in those few kind of years, while it's still just you, how are you developing new products and thinking about where to expand?
1: Although we'd started with a larger line. okay, And I'm atypical in the sense that there's sort of a standard in the personal care industry that you release a SKU every quarter. We don't follow that. So if I think there's something good that we need to release, we'll release it. So this year we're not releasing anything because I don't think the the products that I've been working on are ready yet. Hmm. And some years we'll release one thing. Some years we'll release two things. I purposefully don't follow that schedule that feeds into that saturation that we see. And I'm very mindful of the story that we present to our consumer as well. But all the time I'm sort of playing with formulas. At this point I have half a dozen that I'm tweaking in some way or other. So how it started at the beginning was I needed a product, I'd start working on it, or a friend or family member would say, hey, I need this, please make this for me. And then I would delve in, do all the research I needed to do, and then start sort of unraveling it and then repiecing it together into a new a new piece Now, it's mostly consumer-driven. So we have clientele who will ask. Once I see sort of a critical Mm. ask point of something, I really start delving into it. So one thing we're working on is a natural sunscreen that works, that's not streaky, that doesn't have zinc because my skin doesn't do well with Mm. zinc, which is tricky because almost I think every natural sunscreen on the market needs a physical barrier, Mm. and that physical barrier is zinc. So that's been a tricky one. But I'm very excited for when I bust that open. We've also been working on a spot treatment for a particular kind of acne, cystic acne specifically. And that's a part of my job that I absolutely love. Yeah.
0: And so I guess just talk through how the product line expanded in those first kind of four years in terms of like what did you actually launch with? Because I guess it was more than two. And then if you hit, I guess, 2014 ish, where are you from a product perspective?
1: So we had one deodorant, our face serum. One body oil, three kinds of basalts, three kinds of body wash, and six soaps, I think.
0: At the end of 2014 or when you launched? No, when we launched. Wow. That's like a significant...
1: Oh, yeah. I had a full line.
0: Did you have inventory of things or you would just have them developed and when someone ordered them, you'd make them?
1: I made to order. Partly because I didn't have the space in my teeny, teeny, tiny, tiny little Brooklyn apartment. But also, I didn't want to sit on products if I didn't know they were going to sell. These are perishable. Right. I mean, they're not like two weeks perishable, but still, I wanted people to have the freshest products they could. So I did not sit on inventory. I made as I went. And at the beginning, it was easy. Now, we don't do that, but we also turn over virtually all of our inventory in 14 days. Hmm. There are a couple products we can't just by virtue of the chemistry of making them, like soap in particular. Like, there is just a time frame you have to follow for that. But yeah, we still want people to get the freshest products that they can get. And I apologize, I'm... Oh yes, what I launched with in the intervening years. So a couple soaps, particularly addressing skin issues. So I ha- launched the Bergamot Cinnamon Soap Bar because that's, per- that's very good at addressing psoriasis and eczema, as well as our Activated Charcoal and petit grain Soap Bar, which is acneic and sensitive skin. Mm. So a lot of times acneic skin is not oily, the issue isn't derived from uh, overproduction of oil necessarily. It's often a sign of sensitivity in the skin. So you want to address it slightly differently. We also launched lip balms, facial toners, different kinds of body oils, including a pregnant belly oil. And we're a unisex brand. So I went back and forth on the calling out pregnancy, realized that pregnancy is a medical condition. And there are particular things you need to avoid when you are pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I ultimately did want to call that out as this is safe to use when you are pregnant. It will help your skin repair itself during all of these changes. But we don't use any gendered language like mom, for instance. We also, over the last two years, released our spray, which is our sort of multifunctional spray. It's a hand sanitizer, a bug repellent, and it freshens up your gym equipment. And I use it as a summer scent because I love the smell Mm. of it. And also our concentrated repair balm, which is one of our top sellers now. And our phosphorescence facial mask, which is this super cool algae-based mask. It really doesn't look like anything else I've really seen on the market. It's got this cool sort of jello-like consistency. And it's got food-grade chlorophyll in it. So it's green. It kind of looks like a swamp thing. Like, I love it.
0: Mm. (laughs) Very cool. It's interesting how, because normally most companies couldn't afford to launch with that many SKUs, but because you had no inventory, it didn't really matter because it was just your own time and energy. And did you find that launching with that wide of an assortment was important and or beneficial versus if you had just launched with one or two that maybe people would have been like, I don't need those things. But because you had nine or 10 or however many it was, there was like a lot of possible entry points for someone into the brand.
1: You know, that's a great question. And no one's ever asked me that. I think in some ways it was a blessing and a curse. We ended up getting the bulk of our press on our deodorant cream, Mm. I think, because it was a 100% natural deodorant. I mean, you can eat 90% of the ingredients in there. And it worked. That was revolutionary. And it was in a pot, which was, I mean, actually deodorant creams were very popular in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, Mm. but once we realized what petrochemicals could do for us societally. We had byproducts, which were plastics, and that's when we started getting sticks and rolls and fancy pants gadgeting. So that wasn't a new delivery system, Mm -hmm. but it was sort of new to this generation. So those really helped us stand out. At times, it was a little overwhelming for people to be like, wait, 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 you have more than just the deodorant, Mm -hmm. just deodorant and two oils. And soap is in our name, Soapwalla, so that can also throw people off. I don't know if I would have launched with that many if I had to do it over again. And I definitely would not in this market. Because? It's so busy that if you have one thing that stands out, you're more likely to get noticed.
0: Mm. What was the hardest thing to develop?
1: Probably the deodorant. So the original took me about 2,000 tries. Like literally 2,000? Oh, literally. (laughs) Like books of notes told you I was a perfectionist. (laughs) No, I
0: mean, we used to talk to people who, on the apparel side, they'll do, you know, if you do 20 samples of something, that's considered significant. (laughs) 2,000 is many times that.
1: (laughs) It is. And then the sensitive skin deodorants that we released, I think, two years ago now, that took five years. It took me a significant amount of time until I was willing to release it.
0: How do you know when it's ready?
1: You just know. (laughs) It's hard to describe... I think the feedback I get from my human testers is overwhelmingly positive, and then I know I'm ready. Yeah. So I test it a number of times personally before I send it out, and then I send it to family and friends who <laughs> don't care if I fall on my face the first several times. And then once we get past those steps, I go to another layer of testers who will test it, and then I also include for the next step a biochemist, a dermatologist, and then a you know, sort of more rigorous. More, yes. Yeah. And more degrees of removal from right. me. So they're not like, I'm your friend. I'm going to tell you I like it even if I don't, because right. I really need brutally honest feedback. I don't want it once it hits the market. My rule is once it hits the market, I'm not changing it. It has to be perfect before I hit the market because hmm. you don't want to make that mistake publicly.
0: <laughs> I'm just interested in like the model, but it would also seem that I'm guessing the cost to do 2000 samples is still like pretty cheap. Yeah. Right. Relative to two thousand samples of apparel or a shoe, you would be bankrupt like many times over. I'm sure. You know?
1: <laughs> but also I was doing them. Right. So I'm if fully I had, vertically integrated. Yes. <laughs> if I had to send that out to a lab, oh forget it. Like right. that would have bankrupt me. So doing it in house.
0: Well, it's just amazing how many tries you can have.
1: Mm-hmm. And also I understand my products implicitly in a way that I think possibly other skincare owners don't. Hmm. Because not only did I formulate it, but I worked with it. So I know what happens when X goes awry or when Y doesn't act the way that I want it to. Right. And I also now know how to make small changes during production to account for those since we're working with natural ingredients. You know, if it's a super humid day, some things act a little differently than they would otherwise, even with clima- as much climate control as you can do mm-hmm. in an 1850 <laughs> studio. <laughs> yeah.
0: It also, I guess, raises an interesting question around you often see a lot of column ideas or companies start when the person running them feels a need for something. Mm -hmm. And there's always a big question, though, if that thing can translate into an actual business. And is it, like, does the thing that they actually feel or need have resonance well beyond them to hundreds of people or thousands or millions or whatever? For all the ones you see where it works, they're all the ones you never hear of where someone, you know, has some crazy invention or trap, whatever they wanted. What is it like navigating that where you had such a personal need, but Mm -hmm. also you're not the only customer for the business anymore, and, and it seems like a very interesting balance.
1: Well, I have the most sensitive skin of anyone I know. so I feel like <laughs> You're the ultimate customer in a way. I kind of am. <laughs> I feel like if I can continue to use the products, pretty much everyone else is good. Also, we've been around long enough that we've got like a core group of solid customers who I can bounce ideas off of in a professional way, but make sure that I'm still servicing the people who are supporting us. Yep. So, and that keeps me in check. Also, I keep my ego in check. Like if I love something and I really, really love it, and nobody else does, I'm not going to release it. I'll just make it for myself. Right.
0: Because <laughs> you have that ability. Yeah. So I guess, okay, we hit 2014 now. Where is the business at that point?
1: 2014, I feel like was the real turning point. So that's when we started getting a lot of press elsewhere. We launched in France. We became much bigger in the EU, we started selling in Australia. Mm. That was really when we became an international company. All because of word of mouth press, really. Because up until this year, all of our 250 retailers found us. Mm. This is the first year we're going out and seeking new retailers on our end. Yeah, I'm really proud of that.
0: Did the natural nature of all the products allow you to scale globally easier? Because of different restrictions or testing or so forth,
1: I would say it's actually the opposite. Really, it's harder. If you make the products in a lab and you, all the ingredients are synthetic, you test that once you're done. Hmm. It's called PIF. It's I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's the EU regulations on skincare that are imported, and they kind of kill us every year. Like they're very in depth. I understand the reasoning behind it, which is you know consumer protection from my end especially because we use natural ingredients so with new batches you've got new tweaks that you Mm -hmm. have to make and a lot of regulatory hoops that you have to jump through as a small business it's exhausting it's terrifying and it's expensive so i think in some ways if we were a more conventional skincare brand it might be easier
0: so you said production also is all under the same roof Mm -hmm. as well Yeah,
1: we have help now with our deodorant because we just can't physically keep up with the demand. We still produce in-house, but we also have some outside help. Mm-hmm. While we have a somewhat strict production schedule, we know when we're going to do production throughout the day. If we get a big order of something, we shift everything around so we can produce you know, whatever product it is that needs to get out the mm-hmm. door.
0: What lessons did you learn scaling that production? Because again, normally it's something where you do the prototype and then you kick it off to someone and then you just call them until it's done. But it sounds like you have and have continued to, I assume, put a lot of SKUs out and a lot of yeah. products out through kind of that same system.
1: Scaling is what keeps me up at night, <laughs> if I'm being brutally honest. Scaling is terrifying. It never goes the way you think it's going to go. It's like making rice. If you make a cup of rice, it's like a half a cup of rice and a one cup of water. If you make 10 cups of rice... It's five cups of rice and eight cups of water, like the ratio changes. And for every single one of our products, the ratios change and never in the same way, even hmm. if they're nearly identical products, and I hope something goes off and it's a constant dance. And it's a constant worry because I don't want to sit on raw materials that I don't think we'll be able to use in time, but I also don't want to run out and I don't want to put too much pressure on the farms that we work with. And uh, yeah, it's a constant tug of war which I love. I would not do it if, right. if I really hated it. I, I really appreciate the fact that we can control a lot right. of and this. And that you're there for it, Yeah. Too. Also, if something goes funky, I can figure out where in the line it went right. funky and fix it.
0: How important do you think that is to like the future growth in terms of do you think as a good problem to have, you'll have to continue scaling and, and at a certain point like you did with the deodorant, start to get outside help? Or yes. how do you manage that? Because you've done it for so long, but also it would seem to be a limitation at some point, too.
1: Exactly. Yeah. We want to keep everything in-house as long as we absolutely can till the very, very last second. But if I purposefully keep everything in-house like that, I'll stifle the company. So I do know that. And at some point, you have to let that go so you have the room to Mm -hmm. start thinking of other things as well. We will wait until we can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then we will find reputable partners who have the same ethos as us and really understand where we're coming from and are willing to work with us and letting me be in the space Mm -hmm. probably looking over their shoulder (laughs) and yeah
0: and then i guess to bring the business up to the present in terms of i guess almost the last four years Mm -hmm. kind of now what have been the focus areas as it sounds like you've hired and brought a team in and started to kind of more formalize a lot of the infrastructure as well
1: yeah so there are three of us in the space soon to be four possibly five this year we're doing a hiring push, and then I've got two offsite people, as well as like my two accountants and a web part. Like we've got you know the yeah. whole sort of supportive resource supportive team. team yeah. yeah, but I do want to hand over some of the day to day things that I do that I really should not be doing, and they're eating up brain space that I really need to think about bigger picture issues. To Stacy, who is currently the sort of director of operations. So she would take on a different role and we would hire a director of operations Mm -hmm. to help. Also, I really want to expand to South Korea and Japan as well as the Middle East. We have a small presence there, but not as large as I'd like. And that will take some real culturally sensitive know-how and I want to hire someone who this is their area of expertise and they can really help that be a seamless transition for everyone. So yeah, we've, we've got a lot of growth in store to really help position Soapwella as a go-to, safe, clean, Mm non-judgmental, universal skincare brand.
0: And how have, and I guess, how do you see the channels growing between the retail piece between the e-commerce piece? You don't have stores, right?
1: Mm -mm, No. And that's purposeful. I don't want a store. Hmm. I get asked that a lot. I really want people to be able to smell our products and try them out, but that's why we have these wonderful retail partners. And I'd much prefer to send them to these people who I have like real long lasting relationships with. I mean, I consider a lot of our retailers like close friends at this point. And that's a beauty of a small business Mm -hmm. is we are the economy builders. And I want to help them build their business, and they want to help me build my. Is a really beautiful symbiosis. So,
0: right. so you've actually you have found the partnership in wholesale partner, yes. not some of the other ones that I think a lot of the negativity comes
1: from. Yes, and I mean we work with boutiques, small businesses, a lot of women-owned businesses, a lot of queer-owned businesses, a lot of the people who I support, and I'm a part of those communities. And then the e-commerce site I also want to build because. It's just an easy way to get product to somebody and also get the word out. And, you know, if they are in a rural area and there's no other option for them and maybe they don't feel comfortable going into those stores, they can buy from us. We've established that trust Mm -hmm. and I don't want to give up that line of communication.
0: How do you think the law background has helped you build the business, if at all?
1: I do think it's helped. So no regrets there. (laughs) although I did maybe while I was in it. (laughs) (laughs) I did not think analytically in that way prior to law school and it's really helpful. I can read a contract and not get terrified and know what it means and hold my own in a conversation as a female business owner and I'm small, I'm five feet tall. It's shocking at times how I'm treated by other people in the profession and being able to whip out that knowledge can really help level a playing field that would otherwise be quite skewed.
0: What's been the cheapest, most expensive lesson you've learned building the company?
1: Cheapest lesson is put my head down and get the work done, which I learned being a violinist. It's also the least sexy lesson I've learned, but the most vital. Really try not to pay attention to what anyone else is doing. Put your head down, do the work, and you will see. You will reap the rewards. The most expensive, huh? Everything we source that's not raw materials, so like our packaging and our jars, our bottles, our lids, and our shipping materials are all made in the U.S. Nothing's made in China. Our raw materials are made all over the world, but all of that is in the U.S. And we had been using one label producer. That relationship ended, and I, in a panic, went with somebody who I did not vet, and that was a terribly expensive mistake. I ate all of those labels, which were like... They were just wrong? They were terrible. They were every possible kind of wrong. Like, the formatting was wrong. The colors were wrong. The sizes were wrong. Everything was wrong. And that was painful. <laughs> gotcha.
0: What do you think, two parts of this, is the most like misunderstood part of the brand that you would want to clarify? And then two, what about just kind of clean skincare more broadly?
1: We're not just a deodorant brand. We are a full-service skincare brand. I always like to... Make sure that that's clear to everybody. I'm sorry, what was the second?
0: Misunderstood point? about clean skin care more broadly.
1: That is ineffective. The purpose of our products is that they are as effective, if not more effective, than the conventional products that you can find. just because it's made in the lab does not mean it's better.
0: It would seem a lot of stuff is trending towards just the clean beauty skin care kind of space. Do you see that just continuing for the foreseeable future because of just larger trends of awareness and so forth and do you think there are good things that can be done in labs? What's the spectrum there?
1: Yes, I think that trend is going to continue. Once you've learned things, you can't unlearn them. <laughs> it's like once you've seen right. something, you can't unsee it. So I think once the consumer education and awareness is there, it doesn't go away. What green skincare or green beauty looks like is going to change. I think we'll see more technology and then a swing to less technology. Like all of those swings will mm-hmm. happen, but the business of organic skincare is not going away it was a 13.2 billion dollar market earlier this year and it's expected to double by 2024 it's definitely yeah. it's not going anywhere and yes i don't think that labs are the definition of evil i just think you need to know and make informed choices right. and make choices that make sense for you
0: Almost more on the transparency side than it is like the black box. Exactly. It's it's not the lab itself
1: that does anything. No. It's just, you know, decide if that is something that you want for you. And if it is, great. You understand exactly what it is and how it's made and what its purpose is. If you don't, good. You've got all of these other options as well. I try not to vilify anything.
0: And then where's the name from?
1: Ah, thank you. So (laughs) I had already been making soap before I went to India. And when I came back, a friend of mine who'd also spent time in India dubbed me the soap wala because wala is maker or master mm. in India. So like a chai wala is your chai maker. And I loved it. I mean, technically, I think I'm supposed to be a wali because I'm female, but I like the walla. It, it flows. Yeah. yeah.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for talking.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Rick Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Cara Cohen of Drip Kit, Eliza Blank of The Sill, and Rachel Silver of Love Stories TV. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.